everyone. This is Ben Kelly with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy podcast. I'm coming back to you this week with some things for us to talk about. I was going to speak this week about church polity or uh, church government, if you will. Uh, but since there was news that hit uh, either sometime Sunday or early Monday about Matt Chandler, uh, if you don't know his name, I'll explain who he is in a minute. Since there was News that came down on Matt Chandler about having um, taking a leave of absence from his pulpit. I thought it best that I ought to talk about this event at least a little bit um, so we can explore not necessarily the event itself and him stepping away from his pulpit for a leave of absence, but really more so about what is the theological temperament that gets us to places like this, that uh, allows for celebrity-like pastors. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. I also am going to talk about the books that I have read in the last three months. So I plan on this being a bit of a shorter podcast today, but I hope it is edifying for you and that we get to cover some issues and think about them and really reflect on how the scriptures speak to them. So with that said, I, I do want to give you just a little update about me and what I'm doing. So I'm back working in the public school system. For those of you who didn't know, I work in the public school system and um, I have a much easier time completing my graduate school work when I'm doing that. Over the summer, I was working as uh, kind of a, uh, not a steel fabricator, but a steel worker and uh, who worked for fabricators, and um, really just the physical nature and just the nature of the job, I wasn't allowed to complete a lot of work, and that's why I had to back off doing this podcast over the summer, but I'm back in the schools, I'm working for them, I've got a lot of downtime during the day where I can work on stuff like this, and so it's good to be back doing that. Uh, right now in school, I'm working on my THM, which is a master's in theology. If you don't know what that is, a master's in theology is technically a postgraduate degree that you can get in theology after you get your master's in divinity. So I received my master's in divinity back in the spring, and I went ahead and went straight through to the master's in theology. Uh, it's not, it was only seven more courses, so I was like, hey, I'm going to get this done. I'll get this these extra initials by my name, and they qualify me to do some other things that a master's in divinity wouldn't. And so, but it, it's it's not a doctorate, but it's at the same level as like someone who would be getting a doctor in divinity or a doctor in ministry or something like that. That it um it's it's really pushing the boundaries of um, theological education. It's the highest you can go without getting a PhD in something theology. So, so it, and it may not be quite as hard as the doctorate courses, but I mean, it's up there. It's difficult. There's only a few people in each of my courses. I think there's only 10 in one, and there's a lot of people that are not in, you know, they're not in my same program. They're just uh, taking the uh, the course I'm taking, and then in my capstone, uh, there's I think there's only six students, and that's including me. So 
uh, there, it's it's a very select. It's something you had to have like a three seven GPA and a good recommendation to get in there. So it, it's not for slackers, obviously. But uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm taking my capstone where I'm writing my master's thesis, and it's pretty much just sixteen weeks of research and writing towards this thesis. I get to I got to choose my topic, and so I'm working on Romans one. 18 through 20, where I'm arguing that those verses that Paul writes, where he says there is God's general revelation out there in nature, and that people know God from this, but they suppress that knowledge in rebellion. I'm saying that uh, these verses are not appropriate to build a theology of um, natural theology off of. So, uh, in natural theology, being the idea that we can understand God from nature. What I'm what I'm saying in these verses, and I'm going to talk about in 40 pages, is that no, these verses do not point us to a Christian natural theology. So I'm working on that. I'm also taking eschatology, which is the study of the end times or prophecy in the Bible. And I gotta say, I go to I go to Liberty University. It is a dispensationalist school. Uh, my professor is a very hardline dispensationalist, and I'm not. And so I'm I'm more subscribed to what we would call covenantal theology. If you don't know what these terms mean, um, just for very quick reference, dispensationalism is the idea that there is discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament that Old Testament Israel is not the same as the New Testament church. They are not, they are different. Um, they are different types of people and how God has dealt with them differently in different dispensations. And so they very much believe in, you know, a literal political and ethnic, um, you know, Israel at the end times. They believe that Israel is a, will be a real people that will be uh, regenerated and they'll have a real land uh, for themselves. Um, it's all that, it's all that Tim LaHaye left behind stuff. You know, you got the rapture and uh, people bunkering down for the end times waiting for some politician to be the antichrist. You know, and some of them, they claim that, you know, in the next 50 years, we'll see the Antichrist come out of, you know, Europe or something like that. And it's really goofy in that way. So I have I have to go to I have to take a class where I'm reading about this stuff every day. And it's it's pretty awful uh, in my estimation. I'm not a dispensationalist. Um, I'm more of a covenantalist that sees more continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I'm one who would say that all of the prophecies about Israel are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so I'm taking eschatology, and let me tell you, it's it's been a kind of a tough one because I almost disagree with everything I'm reading in my textbooks. But there's grace for that. There's room to grow, and I'm taking this as a learning opportunity and not just something where I'm kind of just poo-pooing everything they say. I'm using it to learn more about my um, scholarly adversaries. Um, and they're not really adversaries, just people of a different opinion, if you will. So 
Uh, that's where I am right now and what I'm studying. So you can pray for me if you would, and just that I would continue to do well. I'm hoping to keep the perfect GPA so that I have something really nice to show PhD programs in the future. So let's get to what I wanted to talk to what, talk to you about today. And really, um, the Matt Chandler thing. Now, if you haven't heard anything about this, Matt, Matt Chandler um, is stepping down and taking a leave of ab- absence from his preaching following an announcement of an inappropriate relationship that he's had, an inappropriate online relationship. And those for, uh, for those of you who don't know who Matt Chandler is, he's the preaching pastor of the Village Church in Flower Mound, Texas. It's it's a big church. I don't know if we would say it's a mega church. It's big. I mean, my kids listen to one of their kid podcasts. They have tons of podcasts. So Chandler is the lead teaching pastor of this huge church that does a ton of great ministry. And and, Ch- and Chandler's not a bad guy. I I generally like him. He's He seems like a decent guy. Um, Chandler also serves as the president and chairman of the board for the Acts 29 Church Planting Network. Um, this is a network where the last two churches that I have been in were planted as Acts 29 churches. So I'm very, very familiar with the this network. And um, I'm not a Chandler fanboy by any means. I, I could probably count on one hand how many sermons of his I've read. I think I've read one of his books before. So I'm not like, oh my gosh, the world is ending. Matt Chandler stepped back you know, from his preaching pulpit and, you know, we're all going to hell in a handbasket. Now I'm, I'm not like that. What I'm, I'm just kind of, I, it's something that hits close to home because he's the, he's the president and, you know, chairman of the board of the network that I've been a part of for the last 10 years. He's also pretty theologically close to me, although I tend to think he goes a little woke at times, but whatever. I mean, a lot of people do these days. So, um, but what has happened in this hit, I don't know if it hit Sunday morning or if it hit Monday morning, uh, but I'm recording this on Tuesday night. But Chandler's taking a leave of absence because he admitted to his elders of an inappropriate online relationship through email that was and it was it wasn't sexual and it wasn't romantic but it was with another woman and we we don't know a lot of details or even if what Chandler did was considered sinful they keep using a lot of words about unhealthiness and stuff like that they don't outright call it sin and so i don't want to call it sin but it, it probably is <laughs> uh i don't know but it seems like he's more guilty of making crude humor and just uh, joking in a manner that is not appropriate for a pastor, especially a pastor of his position, Uh, not to demean pastors of like, you know, 100 person churches, but, you know, they reach 100 people a week. Chandler reaches literally thousands upon thousands people every week. And so he should be held to a high standard. And it was decided when he when he was called out for this relationship, and this was a relationship that both his wife and the husband of this other woman knew about and they were fine with. And apparently Chandler really didn't think there was anything wrong with these 
crude, silly things that he was saying in email. Again, they weren't of a sexual nature and they weren't of a romantic nature. So we're, and I don't want to speculate, but we're kind of left to wonder what is that? Well, it's probably, if I had to guess, it was probably some crude humor and um, not nice things said about people not like Chandler or something like that. And, um, but it, it is said that his online relationship revealed some quote unquote unhealthy things about his life where he does not live up to the qualifications of biblical eldership. And of course, you know, we've talked about these qualifications, Titus 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, go there to look at them. But we're talking about being above reproach. And, you know, there are multiple spots where Paul talks about how we shouldn't be crude in our humor. I believe Ephesians 5 talks about how we shouldn't have a a coarse type of humor about us that's not edifying, that's not building people up. It's just kind of it's kind of a gross humor, if you will. So I'm assuming the the question going forward will be that is this unhealthy something that has been revealed? Is does it disqualify him or not? I'm sure they're going to be reviewing that, but right now he's taken a leave of absence from the pulpit, you know, and I'm not here to speculate whether or not he's going to come back or he's going to be restored completely to what he was doing. I really, it, it doesn't have a lot of bearing on my life or even my podcast here and talking to you. So I, I don't want to spend too much time on Chandler's particular case and the issues but I, because I, I, I don't really care too much. I, again, I've never been a fanboy, and you know, Chandler's leave of absence, in my view, is just part of a a larger problem that I that we keep seeing coming up. And I mean, it's it's getting to the point where we're seeing it every few months, and we hear about a major American pastor or ministry leader who has disqualified himself because. Of sin, and, and we have to understand that pastors are human; they're going to sin, but they are also called to a higher standard, and they're supposed to live up to those qualifications where they're above reproach. And I think Chandler's case shows us where we, as American Christians, evangelicals. You know, and again, I come from a more Calvinistic Reformed tradition, uh, but I would be willing to put all different types of theological, you know, backgrounds in this problem. We have a problem with seeing our pastors as celebrities. Now, I've talked about different images of pastors before. You talk about, you know, the pastor as the CEO or the pastor as therapist or the pastor as activist. Well, I think there's another one, another image that sometimes uh, we like to place on our pastors, and that's pastor as celebrity. Man, we really want to see the big names, the, the guys who have thousands upon thousands of people attending their churches every week, uh, the, the guys who have these, you know, millions of followers on their YouTube channels, on their podcasts. And, you know, I just wonder how big of a problem is this? This 
this wasn't a problem, to my knowledge. Now, there were pastors who were, quote-unquote, megachurch pastors in the past. You know, the first one that comes to mind is Charles Spurgeon, you know, had a huge following, preached in a huge church, multiple sermons every Sunday. You know, thousands upon thousands of people would come and listen to him. But now it seems that almost, I mean, I mean, almost every city in America has someone that rivals the size of a ministry like Spurgeon, which was a huge outlier 150 years ago. Now this is becoming more and more of the norm. And it's something that a lot of, a lot of guys who are humble and honest, they're, they're, they're trying to attain, you know. I had a great conversation with a pastor who pastors a church of about 350 people, maybe 400 on a good week. And, you know, asking him about how large he wants his church to get. He's like, well, you know, we preach the gospel every week. We preach how sinful people are, how we fail, and how we need Christ every week. And so I know other churches in my city are not doing that. In fact, there are there are three or four other churches on the same street. It's a it's a big street, don't get me wrong. But they're not preaching the gospel every Sunday. And so he he's like, you know, I'd push it to a thousand, you know, two thousand if I could. And while that that idea is nice and I understand that we want people to come in our doors and hear the gospel message. Does that reflect? And, and I'm just asking the question. I'm not trying to say that my pastor friend is wrong. He's a man I respect very much. He's leading a great ministry and he's got a lot of strong leaders in his church and he's preaching the gospel every week. I'm not saying he's wrong, but does the idea of wanting to grow to a Sunday morning service of thousands upon thousands of people, does that necessarily reflect New Testament discipleship? You know, Jesus said in the Great Commission, go, make disciples, baptize them, teach them everything I've taught to you. And so, if we place that in the context of Sunday morning and what Sunday morning is supposed to be, I, I ask you, the listener, this question. Is it better that one man pastors a church of 3,000, and he's very qualified and very talented, or that 10 men who maybe are not quite as talented, maybe are not quite as charismatic, but are still very godly, very talented, very capable men, is it better for us to have one big church of 3,000 going to see this guy weekly, or 10 churches of 300 going to see 10 different guys weekly. 
I think that's a question we really have to start asking ourselves because in the age of technology and social media, this problem isn't going to go away anytime soon. In fact, I would be hard pressed to think of a case where we are not going to continue for this foreseeable future to, to see pastors fail in this way. Pastors who build themselves up to a high status and they have a lot of credibility and then they they fail. And so that that is the question I would ask you. Yes, there are instances where, you know, in the New Testament, obviously Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he's preaching to a big crowd there. There are instances where Jesus taught large crowds. I get that. What we need to ask ourselves, both for the healthiness of our pastors and the healthiness of those who are listening to them, should that be the norm? I don't think it should. I would leave that to you. Feel free to comment. Send me an email. Comment on here. Get in touch with me. Don't care how you do it. I don't think that should be the norm for a few reasons. One, it is definitely harder to shepherd people and keep, I don't want to, I don't want to say like keep an eye like you're, you're spying on them or something, but have a understanding of where people are in their spiritual journey and how they're being discipled. It is much more difficult to do that in a mega church than it is a smaller church, a church of two to 300 people. There's no, there's no question about that. People are better known in smaller congregations. Now, they may not have as, as awesome as music or as talented as a preacher, but generally speaking, they're going to be better cared for in that small setting. And some, you know, some churches are like, oh, we're, we're a huge church, but we have a robust small group type of ministry. Well, that still doesn't solve the problem because you're still sending thousands of people to hear one guy every Sunday. That's a problem. I've heard I've heard stories and there there are there are a few uh celebrity pastors in my city and I've heard weird stories about how uh, when they're out in the public people run up to them and like ask for their autograph and stuff. I mean, that's kind of weird. That, that should make us feel a, a, a bit strange. I don't I can't place my thumb on why that's so weird, but you don't see, you don't see Paul or Peter or James even, you don't see them signing autographs and receiving all this kind of celebrity out in, you know, in the, in the Bible. You don't see that from a guy like Spurgeon in, you know, his preaching and his successful preaching. You don't see that from a guy like Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones who possibly was the greatest preacher of the 20th century. In fact, Lloyd-Jones was like, yeah, I need to retreat and make sure I don't, um, people don't do this to me. They don't give me that kind of celebrity feeling. And it got me to thinking, so we've got this problem with pastors as celebrity. And one of the things that made me stop and think about this and, and how it gets to that point is, well, how do these guys get this celebrity status. 
what are they doing that's making their influence spread like crazy? Well, one thing they're doing is they're writing books. Now, it should be, we should make very clear that there's no, and I don't think it's, it, there's anything necessarily wrong with it, but there's no biblical mandate to go out and write books as a pastor. You're called to teach. Teach the church. Preach the word of God. Pray for the church. You know, if we take those texts in Titus 1 and 1 Timothy 3, got to be able to teach. We see in Acts 6 that the apostles dedicated themselves to teaching the word, the ministry of the word, which was preaching and prayer. You don't have to write a book to do that. I kind of think we we have um, an overemphasis on book. I mean, this is coming from a guy who reads tons of books. I think we kind of have an overemphasis on books in the church today because we pump out so many. And I mean, Christian publishers are just as guilty of this. Uh, but we pump out so many books for Christian through Christian publishers, and we never go back and read the classics. We never go read the giants of the faith that came before us, the church fathers, anything like that. No, we we got to read the next new thing that's really lacks a lot of substance, is easy to read, and it doesn't challenge us too much, really just makes us feel good. Kind of a therapeutic thing almost. Maybe, maybe our culture is just that biblically illiterate and we need that. I, I don't know. I'm beginning to question everything uh, these days. What I do know is that a lot of influence comes from writing books. Well, is that what a pastor is to do? Well, according to, and I already mentioned him, Martin Lloyd-Jones, probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, <laughs> in his book, Preaching and Preachers, which I am currently reading, in the first chapter, he tells preachers, stop doing all this extra stuff, like meeting with people constantly and focus on teaching and preaching. And so if you're doing that, I'm hard-pressed to see how your congregation, even if you're killing it, can go above 500 um, and how people can be known uh, in that type of setting. I, I'm just throwing that out there. I, I don't have an easy solution, but what I do see is a problem of celebrity. And I see that coming from one thing is we're, we're writing so many books and it may be more harmful than it is good. Another thing that you see these guys doing is they're taking to microphones like I'm doing right now. So I'm, you know, this is the pot calling the kettle black. Uh, I'm doing this very thing, although I'm not a, I'm currently not an ordained pastor. I would consider myself more of a theologian at this point in my life. But the thing is, a lot of them are taking to the airwaves and they're, they're recording podcasts and they're putting them out there for mass consumption. And so those that's another way they're building their personal brand. And you have to wonder like again, is it your responsibility to disciple Christians five states away? The question could even be raised, can you even effectively disciple Christians five states away? I've got a buddy of mine who lives 
an hour and a half north of me, he texts me like constantly asking theological questions. And I keep telling him, man, you got to find a guy who can really disciple you up where you live. I, this, this relationship over text and phone calls, it's, it's not going to work. I love the guy. He's great, but it's not as effective as if he had some, someone to sit down with who he could pick this guy's brain about these difficult issues. And they are difficult issues. He's a smart fellow. So that I, I see celebrity coming up and I see the ways that it's being built. And I, I just have to ask the questions, you know, is this what the Bible intended and how we would communicate the gospel? Again, I would say, even though the guys are not as talented, not as charismatic, but just as capable, I would say it's better to have three, you know, 10 churches of 300 people rather than one church of 3,000. I don't know. You can disagree with me. That's that's what I've got. That That's what I wanted to say about the pastor is celebrity. I really think it's time for us to start questioning the presuppositions behind why we allow this to happen. And we need to ask ourselves these tough questions. So that's what I have to say about that. Uh, now I want to trans, uh, really transfer over to talking about books. Uh, I really want to do this about every quarter, just let you know what I am reading, uh, what I like, what I don't like. Well, I actually, I'm not going to talk about what I don't like. I don't want to I don't want you to go read books that I think are harmful or bad for you. But uh, just so that you know, if you are listening to this and you want to follow what I'm reading, I use the Goodreads app, and you'll know how to find me. My name is Ben Kelly. The profile picture for me is the microphone that is the Endeavoring Orthodoxy uh, logo. And so I think my I think my name on there is actually Benjamin. So you'll be able to find me pretty easily if you want to. I know that a couple people uh, who I, I don't even know, I've never met them before, have befriended me on the app. Um, and I guess that's just to see what I'm reading. So if if that if you're one of those people who has done that and I've never met you before, greetings and thanks for following. I hope you keep listening. So, uh, I guess I last I updated you was at the end of June. So I want to go in and tell you about some of the books that I have read since the end of June. And there's only a few. I'm really behind in my reading this year, and it's because I've been doing so much research in journals and such, um, theological journals and just articles and stuff like that. I haven't had as much time to put into the reading of books, but I'm trying to keep up. Uh, the The first book that I would put in front of you, Strange New World uh, by Carl Truman. Uh, if you are not familiar with Carl Truman, he is a historian of the Presbyterian persuasion. He wrote a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, which was a big hit. I think that was maybe two years ago that it came out. I read it. I loved it. He put out a um, sort of an abridged version 
of that book called Strange New World. And uh, what it really was, and he says this in the introduction of Strange New World, after um, the rise and triumph of the modern self came out, which is, it's over 400 pages, it's, it's dense, it's not an easy read, um, even for someone like myself who was familiar with most of the figures that he's talking about, both through philosophy and literature and psychology, I knew most of the people knew had a general idea of what these thinkers believed and how they, how Truman said they contributed to, you know, kind of our, our changing of our culture in our modern day. I was even, I'm even familiar with the more contemporary philosophers that Truman used to build his way of critiquing people. And the, those thinkers are Philip Reeve, Charles Taylor, and Alistair McIntyre. You know, I've read stuff from all of them. And so I'm, I'm familiar with their ideas. But even though I had all that background, I would still say that The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self is a tough book. And I knew many people within my church who were reading it and they were just like, man, you've, you've got to explain to me what's going on here. I'm not sure what's what he's talking about and and you know there would be good conversations that happened from it but it was a tough read well he he says truman that is he says in the introduction of strange new world that this was a tough book it was recommended to me that maybe i write a more abridged version a more toned down version of this book that makes the same argument but is not so scholarly and I think this is a good idea. I, I really do. I, I gave the book four out of five stars. I I thought it could have been a little more than what it was. I It's really pared down in this book. Very easy read. Uh, it, it's worth your it's worth your money to buy it and read it. Really gives you an idea as Christians who are the thinkers and what they thought that contributed to how our culture is acting today and so you know depend you know talking about the pretty much the sexual revolution that's gone on in the last 50 years how did we get to that point to where now we have questions that can be asked like what is a man what is a woman how do we define that he really outlines that stuff and how we got to that play this place in history um, as a historian he's able to put together that narrative. And, and I find it compelling. I've had some people tell me, you know, this book really isn't in the spirit of the gospel. I had somebody tell me, you know, he never once mentions Jesus or salvation or anything like that. And, and, uh, and yet this book is supposed to be a Christian book. And I was just like, wow, that's a terrible argument. Are you saying that Christians should only read books that talk about Jesus and salvation if, if you if you do you're going to be incredibly ill-informed and uh, possibly closed-minded and really probably just a fetus but you know that yeah he doesn't talk about the gospel explicitly but that doesn't mean this isn't information Christians ought to know it, it is definitely information Christians ought to know so strange new world Carl Truman you can pick it up on Amazon it's got uh, pictures. I think that's Karl Marx. Um, that's definitely Karl Marx and Nietzsche on the front. I think that third 
person, a woman. I think that's Mary Wollstonecraft. Don't hold me to that. So, uh, but pick it up. It's definitely worth your time. Um, the next one, Toward a Recovery of Christian Belief uh, by Carl Henry. These are the Rutherford lectures that he gave, and these are gen just general lectures on how we Christians in the last 50 years really ought to be working to recover Christian belief from a philosophical, theological vantage point in our culture. Um, Henry, I, I owe a, a great deal to Henry and how I think. Um, he's really kind of, I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say a, a spiritual mentor, but um, almost a spiritual grandfather that if, you know, he was a large influence over uh, Ronald Nash, and Ronald Nash has been a huge influence on me, even, even though I never knew either men. Uh, they both died well before I read any of their books, but their, their thinking, it just, it, it's what, it, it clicks for me very easily. Uh, they, they have some very similar theological beliefs that I do are to me, and um, the way that they think about philosophy and the relationship on how uh, we need to express truth within our culture, I find very compelling. But yeah, this is a, this is just a book on how Christians ought to be talking to the culture. We shouldn't relativize things. We shouldn't make everything based on experience. Uh, we need to be more objective. We need to approach truth delicately, but understand that God is a logical God, and that we can, uh, even using the scriptures, we can expect um, those to make sense um, to people, or at least we can we can make good arguments and and have good conversations that are logical and um, they really demand. Um, you know, conversation from those who are, uh, who think differently from us. So it's a short book. It's only like a hundred pages. I, I thought it was great. Um, this is my first full book I've ever read from Henry. Henry is uh, probably wrote the, the second greatest theological work of the 20th century. Um, the first going to Karl Barth, his church dogmatics. But I would say um, Henry's work, God, Revelation, and Authority, uh, is probably, I mean, it's, it's six volumes of just questions on, you know, the relationship between God and his revelation and how humans understand it epistemologically and the authority of that revelation. I've read bits and pieces of it. From what I understand, it's brilliant. It's, it's an apologetic work. Uh, it's not purely theological. But I would say, I mean, it is theological. It became extremely important theologically, but it was set out to be an apologetic work. I would say it's probably the second greatest theological work of the 20th century. So reading Henry, um, he's no slouch. He will definitely uh, really edify you. So that's Henry. Moving on to the next one, Sojourners and Strangers, The Doctrine of the Church by Greg Allison. I love Greg Allison's book. Greg Allison is a professor of systematic and historical theology at Southern Seminary in Louisville. I have met him 
in person once. I have spoken with him over the phone. I have texted with him back and forth, um, especially when I have read books by him or articles by him and I have questions about further study or anything like that. I'm his Facebook friend. I'll just I'll just send him a message say, Dr. Allison, hey, I read this in your book on this page. Can you point me to where I can go a little deeper on this subject? And he's happy to do it. He's a great man, very humble man, but extremely talented as a writer. It just um, talented as a theologian and just um, just a blessing to know him um, as a person uh, for the for the very little time I, I I got to meet him I got to spend a day with him um, a, a while many years ago but sojourners and strangers the doctrine of the church this is a book on ecclesiology the doctrine of the church it is balanced it is informative it is Fair. Yes, Allison has his own views. He's he's a lot like me. He's a bit of a Calvinistic Baptist type that you know believes in elders ruling the church and not necessarily a congregational system. So obviously, I like him because I'm convicted of a lot of the same things. However, I just just the way that he covers other subjects, like when he covers the other church governing systems, like the Episcopacy or the Presbytery, he's just so fair and he's so knowledgeable. It's just This is a great book to have. Um, again, if you want something to read and put on your shelf that's going to make you smarter and a, a, a better informed Christian, Sojourners and Strangers by Greg Allison. Uh, you can't go wrong. Uh, let's see, another book, Preaching for God's Glory by Alistair Begg. Great little book. It's only about 60 pages long, so I don't even know if you could call it a book. It's more like an essay. I, I think it's probably just a speech he gave that was um, converted into a book. So I've been I've been trying to read some more books on preaching lately, and it's it's just a great little introduction to the method of expository preaching. Beg he he pulls no punches in describing how there need to be guardrails existing in preaching. Otherwise, we're just going to go off the hinges. He he gives us a lot of just good thought. Um, and and I mean, you may not like Alistair Beg. Uh, you know he's he's not for everyone. He's my favorite preacher by far. I, I can't find, you know, I, it was funny. I asked a guy about him on uh, a guy that I had met for the first time at a, at a men's event who has different theological convictions than I do. I asked him about Beg. He's like, oh, he laughed at this idea. And I just can't, I can't uh, embrace anything he says. And that's very, it's kind of short-sighted. You know, that's kind of like when I hear people saying things like, I don't read theologians I disagree with. And I was like, well, don't ever go to seminary because, you know, at least 50% you'll find good room for disagreement. You're, you're never going to find a program where you agree 100%. Reading people you disagree with helps you grow. So, but I, I like Beg. He's my favorite preacher. I used to listen to his sermons every day on, through the podcast. So there again, there's, there's that celebrity uh, pastor thing, you know, maybe I'm contributing, 
contributing to it as well. So who knows? But I do know Beg is uh, because of some connections I have through Cleveland, um, where his you know his his church is outside of Cleveland. But I have connections and know some pastors in Cleveland, and I know some people who know some pastors that are being brought up through Beg system. They are very active in planting churches in that area and and training pastors. They have a they have a uh, what do you call it a, a training program where they move guys in, pay for their housing, give them a salary for a year, and and train them to be preachers and pastors of local churches. It's just it's an awesome program they have running. So if, if I maybe if I was a single guy, I, I might go up there and. Um, try my hand at it, but you know, got a family and don't want to up, uproot them just for a year and not have any security after that. Who knows? So those are the books that I've read that I like. I've read other books that I really don't want to tell you about because uh, I just don't think they're that great. And I, I have some theological concerns with, so I would be, there's one definitely that I finished today that I would definitely not recommend you. Uh, from a dispensational point of view, uh, I, by a, a scholar that I just disagreed with, and um, because of his tone and his polemics that he used in the book. So, but you can get on, you can follow me on Goodreads, and you know everything that I read because I put it all in there. So, what I'm currently reading right now, uh, understanding end times prophecy. Uh, what is this? A Comprehensive Approach by Paul Benware. I have no idea who that is. It's just one of my texts that I have to read for school. Um, I haven't thought much of it so far. The Rose Guide to End Time Prophecy by Timothy Paul Jones. Timothy Paul Jones sounds familiar. I can't remember who that is. It, but this is a more of a, um, it's a very easy textbook, but it's a more balanced view on the different approaches to end time prophecy. Hasn't been bad so far. Uh, currently reading Progressive Dispensationalism by Craig Blasing and Daryl Bach. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, in the 90s, dispensationalism, uh, there was a movement that became more progressive in it where they tried to integrate some elements that you would normally see in covenant theology um, where, you know, they see where covenant theology sees Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament, you know, dispensationalists who would consider themselves quote-unquote progressive really try to use some of those elements to get closer to uh, the other side of theology that they're kind of at odds with. So I'm reading this book. I think I'm halfway through it. It's not bad. It helps me understand their system better. It's much more amicable and much more scholarly. I, you know, I, I have no, no time for people who write polemical stuff that's supposed to be of a scholarly nature. Give me the facts, make your arguments. Let me decide for myself. Don't make ad hominem attacks on people. Uh, like one of these, one of the books that I've read recently on dispensationalism did. So that's, and I'm sure it happens with covenant theology too. It's just a real bummer that I have to read a book like that for school. So uh, 
Um, coming to the end here, Preaching and Preachers, I mentioned that already by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Yeah, I would recommend that. I've only, I'm only maybe a third of the way through it. I would recommend it for any, even if you're not a preacher, even if you want to know a little bit about what possibly the greatest preacher of the 20th century thought about preaching and how he thinks lead teaching preaching pastors should go about their business and how they should operate their pulpits. It's worth, it's worth its weight in gold for sure. I mean, it doesn't weigh a ton, but that, you know, that, that few ounces that it does weigh would be worth a lot. So it is, you cannot go wrong with this book, uh, preaching and preachers, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones, uh, buy it. I would recommend it highly. And then last but not least, a book that may elude some of you, The Logic of the Body, Retrieving a Theological Psychology by Matthew Lapine. Uh, Lapine got his PhD, I believe it said, from Trinity uh, University. And what he's doing in this book is he's doing what we would call retrieval theology. He's looking back in history. He's uh, convictionally more Calvinistic in his theology. And what he does is he's saying, he's saying those of us of a, a, a reformed background, uh, whether you're Calvinist or not, if you're, if you're reformed, we, we really have an incomplete idea of what human psychology ought to be. And if we want to recover this, we really should look back to someone like Thomas Aquinas. If you don't know who Aquinas is, you know, he's one of the doctors of the Roman Catholic Church, a very, very prominent Roman Catholic theologian. And so you've got this, this Calvinist saying, hey, we need, we have a failing as Calvinists, as Protestants, of understanding human psychology in a theological manner. We need to go back to Aquinas to recapture that. And he's making... He's making an argument, not that guys like Calvin failed in their theological psychology, but he's saying they don't, guys like Calvin never talked about it because they just assumed the psychology of Aquinas, that they, they commented on it very little because they thought Aquinas's um, theology of psychology was was good, and it didn't need reform. But along the way, we as Protestants have lost that psychology, that theological psychology, and we have really suffered in how we understand how to properly care for people in a in a psychological manner. And this this gets into and you and you've heard me talk about this. Before on this podcast, I've talked about, you know, virtue ethics and, you know, how, you know, why, why is, for example, why is Jordan Peterson so popular with Christians today? Well, he's teaching virtue and Protestants have stunk in that area. They have done a terrible job in teaching virtue and how to live the virtuous life. And so what Lapine is saying is that we really need to reclaim and recover, retrieve some of this theology from before the Reformation that will help make our own Protestant theology more robust. 
It is a fantastic book. However, it is by no means an easy read. It is quite possibly the most difficult book I have read so far this year, maybe maybe in the last two or three years. I would have to go back and look. It is it is a tough book. So if you do not have some background in theology, you're going to struggle. You don't, you know, if if you've never read anything of Calvin, if you've never read anything of Aquinas, you're going to struggle. If you don't understand the differences between those types of theological systems represented by Thomas and Thomism and, you know, Calvin and Calvinism, if you don't understand those systems and how they're different and, and how they interact, you're going to struggle. I'm just telling you. Plus, if you don't know Augustine and what he believed and so forth, again, you're going to struggle. Uh, but it is it is a great book. It, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm going through it slowly. I'm about halfway through it, and it's just been a huge blessing. I have recently been convicted that I need to understand psychology better because it is such a prominent topic in our culture, but I reject how many churches are doing it today and how our secular culture approaches it. But I want to have a good theology on how I understand psychology, and this book is helping me do that. So that's all I've got for today. Now, I guess it's it almost went an hour now that I look at it. I did not plan on going this long, but I just start talking and I keep talking. So I I hope this was edifying for you, that uh, we asked some good questions, that you've got some good book recommendations that you can go out and, and look at. Again, if you want to know everything I'm reading, it's on the Goodreads app. Follow me, Benjamin Kelly, and you'll notice me by just finding the profile with the Endeavoring Orthodoxy microphone as my profile picture. Other than that, I pray that God continues to enlighten you, the Spirit illuminates you, and you just have uh, the blessing of you know Christ, His salvation, and just we can glorify God for our joy. Have a great, uh, have a great week. Love you all.